Lecture 20, Part 1 of the Varieties of Religious Experience. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. Lecture 20, Part 1. Conclusions. The material of our study of human nature is now spread before us and in this parting hour, set free from the duty of description, we can draw our theoretical and practical conclusions. In my first lecture, Defending the Empirical Method, I foretold that whatever conclusions we might come to could be reached by spiritual judgments only, applications of the significance for life of religion taken on the whole. Our conclusions cannot be as sharp as dogmatic conclusions would be, but I will formulate them, when the time comes, as sharply as I can. Summing up, in the broadest possible way, the characteristics of the religious life as we have found them, it includes the following beliefs. 1. That the visible world is part of a more spiritual universe from which it draws its chief significance. 2 that union or harmonious relation with that higher universe is our true end. 3. That prayer or inner communion with the spirit thereof, be that spirit God or law, is a process wherein work is really done, and spiritual energy flows in and produces effects, psychological or material, within the phenomenal world. Religion includes also the following psychological characteristics. 4. A new zest which adds itself like a gift to life, and takes the form either of lyrical enchantment or of appeal to earnestness and heroism. 5. An assurance of safety and a temper of peace, and, in relation to others, a preponderance of loving affections. In illustrating these characteristics by documents, we have been literally bathed in sentiment. In rereading my manuscript, I am almost appalled at the amount of emotionality which I find in it. After so much of this, we can afford to be drier and less sympathetic in the rest of the work that lies before us. The sentimentality of my documents is a consequence of the fact that I sought them among the extravagances of the subject, if any of you are enemies of what our ancestors used to brand as enthusiasm, and are, nevertheless, still listening to me now, you have probably felt my selection to have been sometimes almost perverse, and have wished I might have stuck to soberer examples. I reply that I took these extremer examples as yielding the profounder information. To learn the secrets of any science, we go to expert specialists, even though they may be eccentric persons, and not too commonplace pupils. We combine what they tell us with the rest of our wisdom, and form our final judgment independently. Even so with religion. We who have pursued such radical expressions of it may now be sure that we know its secrets as authentically as anyone can know them who learns them from another, and we have next to answer, each of us for himself, the practical question, what are the dangers in this element of life, and in what proportion may it need to be restrained by other elements to give the proper balance? 
but this question suggests another one which i will answer immediately and get it out of the way for it has more than once already vexed us ought it to be assumed that in all men the mixture of religion with other elements should be identical ought it indeed to be assumed that the lives of all men should show identical religious elements in other words is the existence of so many religious types and sects and creeds regrettable to these questions i answer no emphatically and my reason is that i do not see how it is possible that creatures in such different positions and with such different powers as human individuals are should have exactly the same functions and the same duties no two of us have identical difficulties nor should we be expected to work out identical solutions each from his peculiar angle of observation takes in a certain sphere of fact and trouble which each must deal with in a unique manner one of us must soften himself another must harden himself one must yield a point another must stand firm in order the better to defend the position assigned him if an emerson were forced to be a wesley or a moody forced to be a whitman the total human consciousness of the divine would suffer the divine can mean no single quality it must mean a group of qualities by being champions of which in alternation different men may all find worthy missions each attitude being a syllable in human nature's total message it takes the whole of us to spell the meaning out completely so a god of battles must be allowed to be the god for one kind of person a god of peace and heaven and home the god for another we must frankly recognize the fact that we live in partial systems and that parts are not interchangeable in the spiritual life if we are peevish and jealous destruction of the self must be an element of our religion why need it be one if we are good and sympathetic from the outset if we are sick souls we require a religion of deliverance but why think so much of deliverance if we are healthy-minded footnote from this point of view the contrasts between the healthy and the morbid mind and between the once-born and the twice-born types of which i spoke in earlier lectures cease to be the radical antagonisms which many think them the twice-born look down upon the rectilinear consciousness of life of the once-born as being mere morality and not properly religion an orthodox minister is reported to have said quote, dr channing is excluded from the highest form of religious life by the extraordinary rectitude of his character Close quote. it is indeed true that the outlook upon life of the twice-born holding as it does more of the element of evil in solution is the wider and completer the heroic or solemn way in which life comes to them is a higher synthesis into which healthy-mindedness and morbidness both enter and combine evil is not evaded but sublated in the higher religious cheer of these persons but the final consciousness which each type reaches of union with the divine has the same practical significance for the individual and individuals may well be allowed to get to it by the channels which lie most open to their several temperaments in the cases which were quoted in lecture four of the mind-cure form of healthy-mindedness 
we found abundant examples of regenerative process. The severity of the crisis in this process is a matter of degree. How long one shall continue to drink the consciousness of evil, and when one shall begin to short-circuit and get rid of it, are also matters of amount and degree, so that in many instances it is quite arbitrary whether we class the individual as a once-born or a twice-born subject. End footnote. Unquestionably, some men have the completer experience and the higher vocation, here just as in the social world. But for each man to stay in his own experience, whatever it be, and for others to tolerate him there, is surely best. But, you may now ask, would not this one-sidedness be cured if we should all espouse the science of religions as our own religion? In answering this question, I must open again the general relations of the theoretic to the active life. Knowledge about a thing is not the thing itself. You remember what Al-Ghazali told us in the lecture on mysticism, that to understand the causes of drunkenness, as a physician understands them, is not to be drunk. A science might come to understand everything about the causes and elements of religion, and might even decide which elements were qualified, by their general harmony with other branches of knowledge to be considered true, and yet the best man at this science might be the man who found it hardest to be personally devout. To Savion, say to Pardonnet. The name Renan would doubtless occur to many persons as an example of the way in which breadth of knowledge may make one only a dilettante in possibilities, and blunt the acuteness of one's living faith. If religion be a function by which either God's cause or man's cause is to be really advanced, then he who lives the life of it, however narrowly, is a better servant than he who merely knows about it, however much. Knowledge about life is one thing. Effective occupation of a place in life, with its dynamic currents passing through your being, is another. For this reason, the science of religions may not be an equivalent for living religion, and if we turn to the inner difficulties of such a science, we see that a point comes when she must drop the purely theoretic attitude, and either let her knots remain uncut, or have them cut by active faith. To see this, suppose that we have our science of religions constituted as a matter of fact. Suppose that she has assimilated all the necessary historical material and distilled out of it as its essence the same conclusions which I myself, a few moments ago, pronounced. Suppose that she agrees that religion, wherever it is an active thing, involves a belief in ideal presences, and a belief that, in our prayerful communion with them, work is done, and something real comes to pass. She has now to exert her critical activity, and to decide how far, in the light of other sciences and in that of general philosophy, such beliefs can be considered true. Dogmatically, to decide this is an impossible task. Not only are the other sciences and the philosophy still far from being completed, but in their present state we find them full of conflicts. The sciences of nature know nothing of spiritual presences, and on the whole hold no practical commerce whatever with the idealistic conceptions towards which general philosophy inclines. The scientist, so-called, is 
during his scientific hours at least, so materialistic that one may well say that on the whole the influence of science goes against the notion that religion should be recognized at all. And this antipathy to religion finds go within the very science of religions itself. The cultivator of this science has to become acquainted with so many groveling and horrible superstitions that a presumption easily arises in his mind that any belief that is religious probably is false. In the prayerful communion of savages with such mumbo-jumbos of deities as they acknowledge, it is hard for us to see what genuine spiritual work, even though it were work relative only to their dark savage obligations, can possibly be done. The consequence is that the conclusions of the science of religions are as likely to be adverse as they are to be favorable to the claim that the essence of religion is true. There is a notion in the air about us that religion is probably only an anachronism, a case of survival, an atavistic relapse into a mode of thought which humanity, in its more enlightened examples, has outgrown. And this notion our religious anthropologists at present do little to counteract. This view is so widespread at the present day that I must consider it with some explicitness before I pass to my own conclusions. Let me call it the survival theory, for brevity's sake. The pivot round which the religious life, as we have traced it, revolves, is the interest of the individual in his private personal destiny. Religion, in short, is a monumental chapter in the history of human egotism. The gods believed in, whether by crude savages or by men disciplined intellectually, agree with each other in recognizing personal calls. Religious thought is carried on in terms of personality, this being, in the world of religion, the one fundamental fact. Today, quite as much as at any previous age, the religious individual tells you that the divine meets him on the basis of his personal concerns. Science, on the other hand, has ended by utterly repudiating the personal point of view. She catalogues her elements and records her laws indifferent as to what purpose may be shown forth by them, and constructs her theories quite careless of their bearing on human anxieties and fates. Though the scientist may individually nourish a religion, and be a theist in his irresponsible hours, the days are over when it could be said that, for science herself, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Our solar system, with its harmonies, is seen now as but one passing case of a certain sort of moving equilibrium in the heavens, realized by a local accident in an appalling wilderness of worlds where no life can exist. In a span of time, which as a cosmic interval will count but as an hour, it will have ceased to be. The Darwinian notion of chance production and subsequent destruction, speedy or deferred, applies to the largest as well as to the smallest facts. It is impossible, in the present temper of the scientific imagination, to find in the driftings of the cosmic atoms, whether they work on the universal or on the particular scale, anything but a kind of aimless weather, doing and undoing, achieving no proper history, and leaving 
no result. Nature has no one distinguishable ultimate tendency with which it is possible to feel a sympathy. In the vast rhythm of her processes, as the scientific mind now follows them, she appears to cancel herself. The books of natural theology which satisfied the intellects of our grandfathers seem to us quite grotesque, representing, as they did, a god who conformed the largest things of nature to the paltriest of our private wants. Footnote. How was it ever conceivable, we ask, that a man like Christian Wolff, in whose dry-as-dust head all the learning of the early eighteenth century was concentrated, should have preserved such a baby-like faith in the personal and human character of nature as to expound her operations as he did in his work on the uses of natural things. This, for example, is the account he gives of the sun and its utility. Quote, we see that God has created the sun to keep the changeable conditions on the earth in such an order that living creatures, men and beasts, may inhabit its surface. Since men are the most reasonable of creatures, and able to infer God's invisible being from the contemplation of the world, the sun, in so far forth, contributes to the primary purpose of creation. Without it, the race of man could not be preserved or continued. The sun makes daylight, not only on our earth, but also on the other planets, and daylight is of the utmost utility to us, for by its means we can commodiously carry on those occupations, which in the night-time would either be quite impossible, or, at any rate, impossible without our going to the expense of artificial light. The beasts of the field can find food by day, which they would not be able to find at night. Moreover, we owe it to the sunlight that we are able to see everything that is on the earth's surface, not only nearby, but also at a distance, and to recognize both near and far things according to their species, which, again, is of manifold use to us not only in the business necessary to human life and when we are traveling, but also for the scientific knowledge of nature, which knowledge for the most part depends on observations made with the help of sight, and, without the sunshine, would have been impossible. If anyone would rightly impress on his mind the great advantages which he derives from the sun, let him imagine himself living through only one month, and see how it would be with all his undertakings, if it were not day but night. He would then be sufficiently convinced out of his own experience especially if he had much work to carry on in the streets or in the fields. From the sun we learn to recognize when it is midday, and by knowing this point of time exactly we can set our clocks right, on which account astronomy owes much to the sun. By help of the sun one can find the meridian. But the meridian is the basis of our sundials, and, generally speaking, we should have no sundials if we had no sun. Close quote. Or read the account of God's beneficence in the institution of, quote, the great variety throughout the world of men's faces, voices, and handwriting, close quote, given in Durham's Physico-Theology, a book that had much vogue in the 18th century. Says Dr. Durham, quote, had man's body been made according to any of the atheistical schemes, 
or any other method than that of the infinite lord of the world this wise variety would never have been but men's faces would have been cast in the same or not a very different mould their organs of speech would have sounded the same or not so great a variety of notes and the same structure of muscles and nerves would have given the hand the same direction in writing and in this case what confusion what disturbance what mischiefs would the world eternally have lain under no security could have been to our persons no certainty no enjoyment of our possessions no justice between man and man no distinction between good and bad between friends and foes between father and child husband and wife male or female but all would have been turned topsy-turvy by being exposed to the malice of the envious and ill-natured to the fraud and violence of knaves and robbers to the forgeries of the crafty cheat to the lusts of the effeminate and debauched and what not our courts of justice can abundantly testify the dire effects of mistaking men's faces of counterfeiting their hands and forging their writings but now as the infinitely wise creator and ruler hath ordered the matter every man's face can distinguish him in the light and his voice in the dark his handwriting can speak for him though absent and be his witness and secure his contracts in future generations a manifest as well as admirable indication of the divine superintendence and management Close quote. a god so careful as to make provision even for the unmistakable signing of bank checks and deeds was a deity truly after the heart of eighteenth-century anglicanism i subjoin omitting the capitals durham's vindication of god by the institution of hills and valleys and wolf's altogether culinary account of the institution of water says wolf quote, the uses which water serves in human life are plain to see and need not be described at length water is a universal drink of man and beasts even though men have made themselves drinks that are artificial they could not do this without water beer is brewed of water and malt and it is the water in it which quenches thirst wine is prepared from grapes which could never have grown without the help of water and the same is true of those drinks which in england and other places they produce from fruit therefore since god so planned the world that men and beasts should live upon it and find there everything required for their necessity and convenience he also made water as one means whereby to make the earth into so excellent a dwelling and this is all the more manifest when we consider the advantages which we obtain from this same water for the cleaning of our household utensils of our clothing and of other matters when one goes into a grinding mill one sees that the grindstone must always be kept wet and then one will get a still greater idea of the use of water Close quote. of the hills and valleys durham after praising their beauty discourses as follows quote, some constitutions are indeed of so happy a strength and so confirmed an health as to be indifferent to almost any place or temperature of the air but then others are so weakly and feeble as not to be able to bear one but can live comfortably in another place with some 
the more subtle and finer air of the hills doth best agree who are languishing and dying in the feculent and grosser air of great towns or even the warmer and vaporous air of the valleys and waters but contrariwise others languish on the hills and grow lusty and strong in the warmer air of the valleys so that this opportunity of shifting our abode from the hills to the vales is an admirable easement refreshment and great benefit to the valetudinarian feeble part of mankind affording those an easy and comfortable life who would otherwise live miserably languish and pine away to this salutary conformation of the earth we may add another great convenience of the hills and that is affording commodious places for habitation serving an eminent author wordeth it as screens to keep off the cold and nipping blasts of the northern and easterly winds and reflecting the benign and cherishing sunbeams and so rendering our habitations both more comfortable and more cheerly in winter lastly it is to the hills that the fountains owe their rise and the rivers their conveyance and consequently those vast masses and lofty piles are not as they are charged such rude and useless excrescences of our ill-formed globe but the admirable tools of nature contrived and ordered by the infinite creator to do one of its most useful works for was the surface of the earth even and level and the middle parts of its islands and continents not mountainous and high as now it is it is more certain there could be no descent for the rivers no conveyance for the waters but instead of gliding along those gentle declivities which the higher lands now afford them quite down to the sea they would stagnate and perhaps stink and also drown large tracts of land thus the hills and vales though to a peevish and weary traveller they may seem incommodious and troublesome yet are a noble work of the great creator and wisely appointed by him for the good of our sublunary world Close quote. End footnote. the god whom science recognizes must be a god of universal laws exclusively a god who does a wholesale not a retail business he cannot accommodate his processes to the convenience of individuals. The bubbles on the foam which coats a stormy sea are floating episodes, made and unmade by the forces of the wind and water. Our private selves are like those bubbles, epiphenomena, as Clifford, I believe, ingeniously called them. Their destinies weigh nothing and determine nothing in the world's irredeemable currents of events. You see how natural it is, from this point of view, to treat religion as a mere survival. For religion does in fact perpetuate the traditions of the most primeval thought. To coerce the spiritual powers, or to square them and get them on our side, was, during enormous tracts of time, the one great object in our dealings with the natural world. For our ancestors, dreams, hallucinations, revelations, and cock-and-bull stories were inextricably mixed with facts. Up to a comparatively recent date, such distinctions as those between what has been verified and what is only conjectured, between the impersonal and the personal aspects of existence, were hardly suspected or conceived. 
whatever you imagined in a lively manner, whatever you thought fit to be true, you affirmed confidently, and whatever you affirmed, your comrades believed. Truth is what had not yet been contradicted. Most things were taken into the mind from the point of view of their human suggestiveness, and the attention confined itself exclusively to the aesthetic and dramatic aspects of events. Footnote. Until the 17th century, this mode of thought prevailed. One need only recall the dramatic treatment even of mechanical questions by Aristotle, as, for example, his explanation of the power of the lever to make a small weight raise a larger one. This is due, according to Aristotle, to the generally miraculous character of the circle and of all circular movement. The circle is both convex and concave. It is made by a fixed point and a moving line, which contradict each other, and whatever moves in a circle moves in opposite directions. Nevertheless, movement in a circle is the most natural movement, and the long arm of the lever, moving as it does in the larger circle, has the greater amount of this natural motion, and consequently requires the lesser force. Or recall the explanation by Herodotus of the position of the sun in winter. It moves to the south because of the cold which delves it into the warmer parts of the heavens over Libya. Or listen to St. Augustine's speculations. Quote, Who gave to chaff such power to freeze that it preserves snow buried under it, and such power to warm that it ripens green fruit? Who can explain the strange properties of fire itself, which blackens all that it burns, though itself bright, and which, though of the most beautiful colors, discolors almost all that it touches and feeds upon, and turns blazing fuel into grimy cinders? Then what wonderful properties do we find in charcoal, which is so brittle that a light tap breaks it, and a slight pressure pulverizes it, and yet is so strong that no moisture rots it, nor any time causes it to decay. Close quote. Such aspects of things as these, their naturalness and unnaturalness, the sympathies and antipathies of their superficial qualities, their eccentricities, their brightness and strength and destructiveness, were inevitably the ways in which they originally fastened our attention. If you open early medical books, you will find sympathetic magic invoked on every page. Take, for example, the famous vulnerary ointment attributed to Paracelsus. For this, there were a variety of receipts, including usually human fat, the fat of either a bull, a wild boar, or a bear, powdered earthworms, the usnea, or mossy growth on the weathered skull of a hanged criminal, and other materials equally unpleasant. The whole prepared under the planet Venus, if possible, but never under Mars or Saturn. Then, if a splinter of wood dipped in the patient's blood, or the blood-stained weapon that wounded him, be immersed in this ointment, the wound itself being tightly bound up, the latter infallibly gets well. I quote now von Helmont's account. Quote, for the blood on the weapon or splinter, containing in it the spirit of the wounded man, is roused to active excitement by the contact of the ointment, whence there results to it a full commission or power to cure its cousin German, the blood in the patient's body. 
This it does by sucking out the dolorous and exotic impression from the wounded part. But to do this, it has to implore the aid of the bull's fat and other portions of the ungent. The reason why the bull's fat is so powerful is that the bull, at the time of slaughter, is full of secret reluctancy and vindictive murmurs, and therefore dies with a higher flame of revenge about him than any other animal. Close quote. And thus we have made it out, says this author, that the admirable efficacy of the ointment ought to be imputed not to any auxiliary concurrence of Satan, but simply to the energy of the posthumous character of revenge remaining firmly impressed upon the blood and concreted fat in the ungent. The author goes on to prove by the analogy of many other natural facts that this sympathetic action between things at a distance is the true rationale of the case. He says, quote, If the heart of a horse slain by a witch, taken out of the yet reeking carcass, be impaled upon an arrow and roasted, immediately the whole witch becomes tormented with the insufferable pains and cruelty of the fire, which could by no means happen unless there preceded a conjunction of the spirit of the witch with the spirit of the horse. In the reeking and yet panting heart, the spirit of the witch is kept captive, and the retreat of it prevented by the arrow transfixed. Similarly, hath not many a murdered carcass at the coroner's inquest suffered a fresh hemorrhage or cruentation at the presence of the assassin? The blood being, as in a furious fit of anger, enraged and agitated by the impress of revenge conceived against the murderer, at the instant of the soul's compulsive exile from the body. So, if you have dropsy, gout, or jaundice, by including some of your warm blood in the shell and white of an egg, which, exposed to a gentle heat and mixed with a bait of flesh, you shall give to a hungry dog or hog, the disease shall instantly pass from you into the animal and leave you entirely. And similarly, again, if you burn some of the milk, either of a cow or of a woman, the gland from which it issued will dry up. A gentleman at Brussels had his nose mowed off in a combat, and the celebrated surgeon Tagliacosus digged a new nose for him out of the skin of the arm of a porter at Bologna. About thirteen months after his return to his own country, the engrafted nose grew cold, putrefied, and in a few days dropped off, and it was then discovered that the porter had expired near about the same punctilio of time. There are still, at Brussels, eyewitnesses of this occurrence. Van Helmont then adds, quote, I pray, what is there in this of superstition or of exalted imagination? Close quote. Modern mind-cure literature, the works of Prentice Mulford, for example, is full of sympathetic magic. End footnote. How indeed could it be otherwise? The extraordinary value for explanation and provision of those mathematical and mechanical modes of conception which science uses was a result that could not possibly have been expected in advance. Weight movement, velocity, direction, position. What thin, pallid, uninteresting ideas! How could the richer animistic aspects of nature, 
the peculiarities and oddities that make phenomena picturesquely striking or expressive fail to have been first singled out and followed by philosophy as the more promising avenue to the knowledge of nature's life well it is still in these richer animistic and dramatic aspects that religion delights to dwell it is the terror and beauty of phenomena the promise of the dawn and of the rainbow the voice of the thunder the gentleness of the summer rain the sublimity of the stars and not the physical laws which these things follow by which the religious mind still continues to be most impressed and just as of yore the devout man tells you that in the solitude of his room or of the field he still feels the divine presence that inflowings of help come in reply to his prayers and that sacrifices to this unseen reality fill him with security and peace pure anachronism says the survival theory anachronism for which deanthropomorphization of the imagination is the remedy required the less we mix the private with the cosmic the more we dwell in universal and impersonal terms the truer heirs of science we become End of Lecture 20, Part 1